Well, it got bad. It got really bad. A failure of leadership at the highest level, King Solomon, who introduced idolatry into the kingdom of Israel. It led to a civil war, a split in, in, in a once united kingdom, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom dove headlong into religious practices that violated the covenant and, and um, it made, that God had made with them. First and foremost, first one of those pieces of the covenant was, you shall have no other gods before me. They traded the worship of the one true living God who delivered them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and brought them in to a fertile promised land as their new home. They traded him for gods to made, made to look like birds and animals and reptiles. Snake on a stick, golden calf hammered out of metal. They forgot their maker, their redeemer. They abandoned the life-giving God for lifeless images. And it destabilized the nation. If they had evening news, it would have been very dramatic and very sad. You read some of the lists of what happened uh, in succession of the kings, especially in the north in Israel. And it's very um, disturbing. This is Second Kings chapter 15, verse 8. It says, In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam, became Israel, king of Israel in Samaria... And he reigned six months. Verse 10. This is why he reigned six months. Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah. He attacked him in front of the people, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. Going down to verse 13. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he reigned in Samaria one month. Then Menahem, son of Gadi, went from Tirzah up to Samaria. He attacked Shalom, son of Jabesh in Samaria, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. Six months, one month, go to verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. Verse 25. One of his chief officers, Pekah, son of Ramalia, conspired against him, taking 50 men of Gilead with him. He assassinated Pekahiah along with Argob and Ariah in the citadel of the royal palace at Samaria. So Pekah killed Pekahiah and succeeded him as king. And then verse 30, Then Hoshea, son of Eli, conspired against Pekah, and son of Ramalia. He attacked and assassinated him and then succeeded him as king in the 20th year of Jotham, son of Uzziah. So, if you thought our political system has problems, consult ancient Israel. One king after another got assassinated. And usually the man who assassinated him succeeded him as king. It wasn't just bad for the kings, it was also bad for the people. Because when you have bad leadership, the people usually suffer under their leadership. Things happened to them like they were more susceptible to disease, the Bible says. That they became susceptible to raiders and thieves. In the end, they became exiles in a foreign country, Assyria. Judah in the south faced the same fate over a century later. Their country was ransacked by foreign kings, with, with the brightest and the best being carried off into captivity. You know, I can't think of any events in Israel's history that are sadder than these, in, in, in biblically speaking. That line, there's a line that says, So Judah, this is at the end of 2 Kings, 
It says, so Judah in verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 21, so Judah went into captivity away from her land. That's just really loaded with a lot of grief. We really can't understand, you know, from our perspective, that was thousands of years ago. What was it like? Do you ever think what it was like emotionally for these people? Okay, so you watch. I mean, they're assassinating their kings in front of the people. That's like, okay, that would be something to see assassination right in front of your eyes. And then you're getting ripped off, and then you have disease, and then you have a foreign country come in, and they displace you. They take you out of your homes, and they place you in another country where they speak a foreign language, where they have different customs, where they have different gods. What would that have felt like? And we really don't appreciate just how awful it was when, like, Babylon swept into Jerusalem and ransacked it. But here's some words. There's an actual book in the Bible that deals with just the emotion of the tragedy of Judah's downfall. And the book is called Lamentations, which means sorrow, crying, weeping. And that's basically what the book is about. It uses words like this. We're deserted. We're like a widow. We're a slave. Bitter weeping. Betrayed. No resting place. Bitter anguish. No comfort. Despised. Our eyes overflow with tears. Our children are destitute. Our children's lives ebb away in the arms of their mother. And this line from chapter 2, verse 3. Jerusalem, your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal it? Think of the Mariana Trench, what, 35,000 feet deep? You've got a wound that deep. How do you heal something that deep? If you've ever cut yourself deeply, you know it takes a lot longer to heal that deep wound than a a flesh wound. And Judah was, was cut so badly, how could they ever be healed of what happened to them? So the question that that might arise in your mind, that certainly arises in my mind, is why did it all happen? Why did Israel in the north and Judah in the south experience such heartache and such bitterness and such tragedy? And the Bible answers that question. Chapter 17, verse 7, says this. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, They worshipped other gods, and they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the king of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols that the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah, Through all of his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways, Observe my commands and decrees, In accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, And that I delivered to you through my servants and prophets. And then going down to verse 16. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So it was no mystery. God predicted that this would happen. They did it. And then he explained why it happened to them after the fact. 
Worshiping false gods led to sinful behavior, led to separation from God. Isaiah the prophet said, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. You know, we're prone to do the same thing. It's like, I used to look at the Israelites and go, what was wrong with those bums? Why couldn't they figure this out? How simple is it? But you know what? We're all prone to idolatry. Uh, The big idol, idol today is basically greed. The love of money. It's like, what is underneath idolatry? Why is it our hearts are always wandering to something other than God? There's something in there. There's something inside of us that's seeking something from someone that will, that will give us what we want. And, and what does money do for us? Well, it gives us security. If you got money, you know, you got your emergency savings account. You got your health plan. You got your retirement. So you got security. You got protection. You know, um, you've, got, you've got happiness with money a lot of times. Um, it delivers something for us. It delivers comfort. And that's really what God's, that's what God's promise. But you know what? God in heaven, the one true God, that's what he delivers. That's his promise to us. I'll, he says, I'll protect you. I'll give you comfort. I'll, I, will, I will bring you happiness and joy. I'll give you security. So anyway, this is a really bad time in history for Israel. And we're prone to do the same thing. Now, here's what's interesting. The thing that I didn't read to you is that there, are, there were kings in their history that broke bad. They broke the pattern. They didn't go with the flow. They broke the cycle of idolatry and evil and unbelief in their lifetime. But I have another question. Is how did they do that? If most everybody is doing one thing that's hurting everybody, how do a couple of guys figure out and go the opposite direction? And if it's so good to go the opposite direction, why don't more of these guys who go in the wrong direction go that direction? There's got to be a reason. It's got to be the same kind of reason that we do do the same things. That we follow patterns of our families and the things that that are in our culture and are in our hearts and everybody around us. And we keep going this way. Oftentimes it can be harmful and destructive instead of like, well, why aren't we going over here? And so I want to look at one of these guys in particular that broke bad. His name was Hezekiah. And I want to look at how he did it. Because I believe one man, one woman, one child can do this. You know, if, you're looking, if you ever wondered in your life, why are there certain things that are happening that, that aren't good? Um, what can I do to make a change in that, in that regard? I, was reading an inter- I read an interesting book on, uh, on vacation. It's called The Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. He's a hillbilly. He was. He was raised in the, in the Ozark, in the hills back in hillbilly country. And um, so he was raised in a culture where parents put Mountain Dew in their kids' baby bottles. And so the kids, by the time they're young, their teeth start to rot. And raised in a culture where um, laziness was a big thing, you know, joblessness was a big thing, and yet they complained about other people being lazy and not having jobs. Um, It was a place where addiction is rampant. It's a place where debts would pile up for people, even if they had good jobs. Uh, it was a, a way of life where family retribution and revenge was very big. If you mess with my family, we're going to mess with you. Um, and so he was raised in this. And also the mentality was, you can't get out of here. If you're born into this, there's no way that you're breaking bad. You're staying here. 
You're not like other Americans. You don't have the opportunities that they do. Well, J.D. Vance broke out. And what he did was he, got, uh, he graduated from, from high school. He was going to go to college. He and his grandma couldn't even figure out how to fill out the forms. So he said, well, you know what? I'll go to the Marines. So he went to the Marines. And he couldn't believe what happened. He went to the Marines and he figured, hey, I, he learned I can run. I can run a mile. I can run two miles. Hey, I can climb a rope. He built up his strength. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, my body's changing. And I can get up early. And I can do these exercises. And he went through the Marines. And he, he got out of the Marines. And he, said, he went back to Ohio State University. figured out how to fill out the forms. Now he can fill them out. He took two and a half years to get out of Ohio State. That's all. To get a four-year degree. He applied to Yale Law School. He got accepted to Yale Law School. And because he was so poor as a hillbilly, he got all this, this, this help financially. He really didn't have that much debt. He met his wife at Yale Law School, and now he's a high-powered lawyer, J.D. Vance, hillbilly. How? How did that happen? The end of the book, he says there were two things. He says, number one, I needed the, the keys for me was a stable home. He says, my mom had men in and out of her life, husbands, boyfriends. He said, when I had to go live with her, it was chaos. But he says, when I could be with my mama, his grandma, where it was stable. Okay, understand, his grandma, this family, J.D. Vance's family, is related to the Hatfields and McCoys. One of his relatives started the Hatfield and McCoy feud, killed one. I don't know who, he was on the side that started it a Confederate soldier who, who murdered a Union soldier after the war. His family's a part of that. His mama, his grandma, I mean, when she was 12 years old, the theory was she shot someone with a shotgun. His grandma, this is the stable home, okay? His, and she was, you don't mess with mama. Her husband came home one night drunk, well, after many times of coming home drunk. She says, no more, honey. You come home drunk one more time, I'll kill you. This is his sweet little grandmother. He came home drunk one more time, fell asleep on the couch. She poured gasoline on him and set him on fire. And they put him out, and he only had second-degree burns, and then they, they didn't live together anymore, okay? So that is, what, that is your stable home life. That woman. But he could come home, and he could do his homework. She cared about him. He was on her good side, and that's a good thing. And the other thing was, he had friends who had a different, they, were, they, had, they, they showed a different way of doing things. He said, having a stable home life and having a dream, that's what did it. That helped him break bad. So, what helped Hezekiah break bad? Hezekiah, let me, let's, let's read. First thing, Hezekiah was, was kind of like, like a hillbilly. He's raised where everything around him is, is pretty rotten. His father, Ahaz, killed his brother, sacrificed him in the fire. Probably a half-brother. You know, they oftentimes gave the name of the mother because these kings would have multiple wives. So I don't know if they were full-blood brothers, but at least they were half-brothers. And dad sacrificed his brother in the fire. His son, Manasseh, was one of the most wicked men to ever live. Hezekiah was sandwiched between two rotten men. So how did he, how did he get out? How did he march to the beat of a different drummer? Well, let's look at this. And I want to give us, these are, these are 
things that we can take, just we could take, if you're a hillbilly today and you need to know how to get out of the Ozarks or whatever, J.D. Vance, okay? Stable home life, having a different example. Hezekiah tells us this, we want to break bad the patterns of evil and darkness in our world. Number one is do this. He trusted God. Let's, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. That's what he did. He leaned on him, pure and simple. He leaned into God in his ways. You know, I was wondering about this because these are real people in here, in this book. It's easy to look at them as cartoon characters, like two-dimensional. But they had flesh and blood, and they had dreams and aspirations, and they saw things. And I, I was wondering, I wonder if Hezekiah thought, you know, what did my dad's idolatry do, his unbelief? I mean, he killed my brother because of these idols. I don't have that brother anymore because of what my dad did to him, because of those rotten idols. And why were those gods, how could they be so powerful if he had to lean on the king of Assyria to get him to lay off? He made this alliance with the king of Assyria and he went and he plundered the temple to give the king of Assyria all these precious things from the, the temple. It's like, wait, if these gods are so strong, why can't these gods take care of the king of Assyria? But apparently they weren't. They were impotent. You know, we know for sure that, that Hezekiah knew God's commands because he kept those commands. And faith comes from hearing the message. Look at the effects of unbelief in people's lives as you look around. You know, it's, does it pay off to simply not believe and not to trust God? If you were to step back and you just look at all the lives that you see in Sonoma County, how is it working? More importantly, take a good long look at the living true God in Scripture. He's trustworthy. And then just lean into him, no matter who you upset or what you give up, no matter how you have to change or how different it makes you look. It's recorded of Hezekiah that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after him. Trusting God in everything makes you different. Trusting God just will, will do that, and, and it will help you to break bad. Second thing that he did that's related to his trust in God that flows from it is that he switched allegiances. I, I always respect these guys because I think, you know, I don't think we appreciate, again, how much they had to go through, just who they were upsetting when they did things like this. But look what it says. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down Asherah poles. The whole nation relied on those things. And a new leader comes into power, and he just starts smashing stuff and throwing stuff away. He disassembled all the paraphernalia that people have been using to get the God's attentions. You know, what have you inherited that needs to be disassembled? Have you inherited things that you haven't really thought of? You know, we're kind of like fish. Culture is kind of like a fish swimming in water. It's, it's all around you, but you really don't know that you're in water. And our, the, the, the life that we live in this culture, sometimes we don't even know how it's affecting us. But can you see things? You know, did you inherit like, oh, it's really important to have a lucky rabbit's foot. I got to have that. I mean, I had that when I was a kid. I don't know if they do lucky rabbit's foots anymore, feet. You know, a little furry thing and they dye it, you know, red or blue or green you have in your pocket, you know. Or a lucky penny. This is what's going to get me through. Or for some people today, it's, it's ancestral worship. We worship our ancestors to get things. 
or belief in do-goodism, you know, works righteousness or self-reliance. I got to do this all by myself. I got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's all about me. The problem with all of these attempts of being, getting God's attention is that, is that they're graceless. They don't depend on God's grace and mercy, but on our own efforts. So what do you need to chuck? You know, I, I see that thing about high places all the time, but they continue to worship at the high. You know what that was about? The people in the ancient world believed the earth was flat. It wasn't round. The earth was flat. The gods were in the heavens. And the way to get their attention was to get up on the high place and then to burn incense and do blood sacrifice. And maybe, yoo-hoo, down here, down here, I need your help. The crop's not very good this year. We need good crops. Can you help? Or we got this country that's coming to attack us. You, could you protect us? Yoo-hoo, yoo-hoo. So we get in the high place. Well, that, that's all man's attempt. You know, God, come down, you know, do the... You know, it's all about me doing my thing. And, and the problem with that, it's not about grace and mercy. God come, coming down to our level and helping us where we are. We don't have to go up on the high place to get God's attention. He sees us already. He knows what's going on. We don't have to go through those shenanigans. And so Hezekiah busted up all that. So I mean, he's busted up. He's inviting grace into their lives and their community. So what do you have? Do you, do you have things that you like, hey, this thing I've inherited or this thing that I have, you know, that's not, that's not of God. That's not the, I need to get rid of that. I need to take that out of my life. You know, I've, I've said before, I, used to, some, I got this necklace in a ceremony that I did. And it was in my office. And I started to feel funny about that. It's like, there's something funny about this necklace. I'm like, I just need to get rid of that. And I'm not going to give it away. I took it, into the, I took it to the dumpster in the corner of the property. I'm throwing this thing away. I don't want anybody to have it. Because it's not a good influence. I just have a funny feeling about it. I don't know if you have anything in your life that you've ever thought that about. Maybe you just need to dump that and get rid of it. You know? I remember playing uh, um, oh, the Ouija board. You know, junior high kids with the cousins just getting together, having a good time. And, you know, somebody, one of the kids was always moving the thing, you know. We weren't doing it the way you're supposed to do it. But it's like when you found out later, that can invite some darkness in. It's like, okay, we won't do that anymore. We check out the Ouija board. You know, I inherited something from my family. I think most of us do because our families are not perfect. But one of our things was trying to be perfect and perform. So we had this kind of performance mentality, you know, look your best all the time. Play the music perfectly. Play the game perfectly. And, and it was like, I, I realized when I was in college, I've got a lot of stuff of just this performance perfectionist mentality. And it's messing up my peace and my joy. And I, I, had, to, I had to go, you know what, I need to let this go. This is, it, came, it came through my family, and I just need to say, no, I'm not going to abide by that anymore. I'm going to live a life of grace. So what is it that you might, what, what allegiance you might need to switch, what what paraphernalia you might need to get rid of, what kind of uh, value from your family that's not of God that needs to be let go of. And a third thing, after he trusted God and he switched allegiances, is that number three, he stuck with it. it. says he held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. Don't stop trusting God, folks. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. The odds are something's going to come along that's going to make you want to quit someday in your faith. Don't do it. Life is with Christ. Wait for him. He'll come through. You know, the older I get, the realize we really do go through different seasons, don't we? 
You know, when you're a kid, certain things interest you, and then those things fall away. Then you come into maybe junior high, high school, and certain things interest you, and then they fall away. Then you're a young adult. Certain th- you know, we go through all these phases, and our, and our interests change, and our emotions change, and we have these experiences in our life. And all of a sudden, we're like a different person. If you're married, you're like, wow, we're a lot different than when we were married 40 years ago. You know, you change. Life changes, but God does not change. And we just need to stick with this. There's going to be forces that come and are going to try to knock you off. But stick with it. And that's what he did. Number four, he read and he practiced the word of God. He kept the commands the Lord had given him. He's a king. I'm guessing he was a busy man. He had justice to meet out. He had buildings to complete. He had an army to command. He had a family. He had international leaders to meet with. And yet somehow Hezekiah found the time to hear what the words said. And so don't let being too busy be an excuse for reading and practicing the word of God. Your life depends on it. Your family's life depends on this. Your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. Fifth thing, and I love this, he rode the wave. When we trust God, when we, when we switch allegiances, grace is coming. Let's read this together. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Hezekiah experienced success unlike the idolatrous, unbelieving kings before him and after him. When we break bad through faith, there is a wave of grace that comes rolling in. And you just need to hop on your board and ride it. I don't know if any of you are, are, are surfers. I've tried surfing. It's hard. Um, I tried it in San Diego in college. I tried it not too many years ago in Santa Cruz. It's like I just can't get up on that. I don't know how to do it, you know. But one, several summers ago, my wife and I went to, uh, to Hawaii. And I thought, oh, I want to take a surfing lesson. You know, they're, they're pretty tame. They're smaller waves, and they're long, and they have the long boards. And you know, if you give somebody to give you a push, maybe I could get up on the board. <laughs> so me and this high school kid, we're on the shore, and she's telling us, how, this is how you, you, you know, you get up on your knees, and then you hop up to your feet. She says, now we're going to go out. We went, we're at Waikiki. And we went out into the waves. She took us to this break. She knew where the waves would break that were not too big. And she, could be, and she was like a drill sergeant. I mean, I'm like, I can't believe She's hard on us. She's yelling at us. And, ah, ah. and I'm like, oh, man, she's tough. Maybe she was a drill sergeant. So we're, we're out there in the waves. And finally, she, she, she pushes me. She says, paddle. <laughs> I'm paddling. She says, stand up. And I'm, I'm like on my knee. And I'm like, I stood up. And I'm like, I'm up. And I just kept going with the way. And, you know, it's Waikiki, so it's beautiful water. It's just gorgeous water. I just kept going and riding and riding and riding. It's like, this is amazing. And I did it like six or seven times where I got up riding a wave. And the great thing about surfing, riding a wave, is, man, you don't generate the power. You just harness it. You just get on your board. And it's a great ride. And Hezekiah was like that. You know, God was doing all this good stuff for him. He trusted God. And all of a sudden, God's protecting him from the Assyrians He's protecting the people. You know, he is making him thrive. He's, doing, he's prospering. Why? Because he, he rode this wave of grace. He trusted God. And when God brought it in, it was like, that, that's all we need to do. When you experience that, you're going to want more. Make everything, it makes everything easier when you begin to experience the grace of God. And then number six, he prayed. Hezekiah prayed. 
And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, this is what the Lord says, I've heard your prayer. The world around you will put up resistance to your grace-filled, breaking bad lifestyle. So you've got to call on God for help. He listens and he responds. And number seven, he was wholly devoted to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion. You know, is there anything, all of us have things that compete for our allegiance. We need to give that up to him. So what I want to do, uh, Donna, if you'd just come up to the piano. You know, give you an opportunity if, uh, say, you know what, I need to break some patterns in my life. Or maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but I have a hunch there's something quite not right that needs to be changed in my life. Um, I need to trust God more in this particular area, or I've got something that's competing for his allegiance. Um, I want to encourage you just to come this morning and kneel at the altar. If you like, I don't, if you say, Lord, I don't, I'm not sure what it is, but I, I feel like there's something wrong. There's something off. And I want you to show it to me. You know, we can be blinded. Uh, it's so easy to be blinded and not know what's going on around us and how we're being affected by it. And so we're going to sing this song, um, Change My Heart, O oh God. And uh, if you want to come and pray this morning, I invite you to do that. Let's go ahead and stand. sing together change my heart oh God make it ever true change my heart oh God may I be like you sing that again change my heart oh on us, that do have a grip on us, the fears and the, and the sin and the darkness, that you break those off. And God, the, sometimes the depression, uh, sometimes the troubled emotions that we have, um, dealing with wayward desires that, that seem to take us down a wrong path, that 
you're, you're Lord over those. And when we give ourselves over to you, you break the power of those things in our lives. So Lord, we want to be free from that. We want to know the life that we are intended to live, not in that dark place, but in your light. And so Father, we just give ourselves over. We pray, Lord, you'd hear the prayers of those here at the altar. that you'd answer, that your power would be at work in our lives. So uh, we bless you, Lord. We pray that you'd walk with us in your freedom, that, uh, that those who are here, Lord, that we would shine like stars in the universe against a dark backdrop, that you would be seen in us. We'd be salt and light in our world. So we just bless you, Lord. We praise you. We praise you that you're there for us that, that uh, the things that have bound us don't have to bound us any, bind us any longer. I pray you go with us with your spirit. He says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So go with us in your spirit. Help us to walk in freedom, Lord, and to know more abundant, prosperous, prosperous living. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.